the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome, welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart, all you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free, uh, uh, toll-free number. Um, what am I saying? <laughs> the free KSLR mobile app. Yeah, the free KSLR mobile app. It's it's Monday. What can I say? Yeah. You can use the free KSLR mobile app and just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. The reason my brain faded there for a moment, I was thinking that this is, believe it or not, the first Monday in October, and we're sort of like the Supreme Court here uh, on the word to send them for life. We are now in session. So it's a good opportunity to remind everybody to pray for our Supreme Court justices and pray for our national and state and local leaders. Uh, they need our prayers. Believe it. Believe me, they need our prayers. Very quickly, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to be having our men's and women's Bible studies. Linda McMillan will be teaching the ladies, Pastor Ken, the men. And um, uh, junior high and high school grades will be here as well. So you can make it a family affair. That's at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch uh, the ladies' study at 7 o'clock on on uh, our website, calvarysa.com, live stream. Okay, I don't think we have a bunch of stuff going on. So let me just get right to some questions that have been asked. Our first one um, comes in, and it I don't have a name to it. So uh, it just says, do we know exactly what the great falling away is? Is it the false prosperity gospel, the heretical uh, many roads leading to God gospel, uh, the Catholic Church and all the work, works, cults, or a combination of those and more? Or could it be lazy Christians? Um, I, the, the, the falling away is none of those things. The great falling away uh, from Second Thessalonians uh, is uh, the, the Greek word is apostasy, and it, it really means what it sounds like apostasy. Uh, and and I believe that we are in that moment where the great falling away has already begun. So uh, that's how close I think we are uh, to the end. Uh, it's just the falling away from the Word of God. All of the things that you mentioned include that, but I don't think it's anything specifically. I just think it's everything. I want you to think for a moment about what we've done, and, and the church needs to stand up and own this, bear responsibility. On Wednesday night, I'm going to be teaching out of Daniel, and Daniel, who is arguably one of the holiest men in all of Scripture, uh, Daniel um, is um, uh, taking responsibility uh, 
uh, for the sins of his people Israel. I think we in the church, we also need to take responsibility because we've let it happen. We've gone to churches. We've let our ears be tickled. We have sort of dialed down the message of of sin and repentance being necessary, uh, of Jesus being the only way. Uh, We've decided God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise all the time. Jesus is taught as a means to get, get into all your problems. Just believe in Jesus. And none of those things are true. I had the privilege yesterday here at our church uh, on Communion Sunday of teaching 1 Corinthians 15, the first eight verses, which really is the first three verses, especially the gospel. Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And, And yesterday we talked about what the gospel is. I also talked about what the gospel is not. And it's not a self-help program. It's not to make you feel better about yourself. It's not a self-esteem booster shot, spiritually speaking. The gospel means death. The gospel means sacrifice. And frankly, as a church, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ all over the world has decided we don't want any part of that. And real believers have not stood up and say enough. We keep going to churches that tickle our ears. We keep going to these huge churches that entertain us. Uh, They put on great shows. You don't go to church for a show. You go to church to be equipped to do the work of ministry. So uh, to whomever this uh, questioner is, uh, the great falling away, I believe, with all of my heart, has already begun. And the result is uh, that we are speeding right into the place where Jesus is going to call his church home. So all those things are terrible, but those aren't the things. It's just a general falling away from what we know is true. So thanks for the question. I appreciate you listening. Hey, before I get started now, Paula, I don't know if you're listening. Paula always listens, but uh, Paula is away at her uh, pastor's wise retreat. And uh, probably is not listening at this point, but in case you are, I miss you, I love you, hurry home. Okay, now let me get to, and that was not to put guilt on you, Paula, in case you're listening. Gina asks, um, Pastor Ron, is Alcoholics Anonymous consistent with the Bible for recovering alcoholics? Uh, Gina, no, there's nothing about AA or GA or NA or any of the other A's that is consistent with the Word of God, period. Um, um, believe me, God uses everything. And I'm on the record as saying this, and and I I repeat this every time I get a question about AA because I make people mad and I get these nasty, ugly emails. Um, um, AA stands in complete contradistinction to what the Bible teaches. Now, any program is better than no program for an unbeliever. So I also want to say that clearly. Any program is better than no program for an unbeliever. But for Christians, a 12-step group is 11 steps too many. AA believes that you have to uh, teach us that you have to have a higher power. Well, unless that higher power is Jesus Christ, it's not a higher power at all. AA believes that once an addict, always an addict That's not what the Bible teaches. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Our sins are as far from us as east is from west. When the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in a believer, we have the power that raised Christ from the dead living within us. So Gina, AA is not consistent at all. And I think uh, the, the question that I had first about the, the great falling away, this is just one example. We would rather believe in a 12-step program founded by unbelievers on a secular foundation. We'd rather believe that than believe that Jesus Christ truly has the power to forgive, to redeem, and to renew. So AA is not something that Christians should be involved in. Let me also add that Celebrate Recovery and all of the other so-called Christian 12-step groups that have just sort of morphed off AA and and the others, um, none of those things have any value at all in the life of a believer. We either believe that Jesus Christ has delivered us. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, It, the grace of God, 
It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. Now, Gina, either we believe that or we don't. And if you don't believe it, then we need to question whether or not we really have surrendered our heart to Jesus Christ. It is maddening to me. It is unbelievably frustrating that so many people are believers. I'm talking about genuine believers. It's frustrating that they haven't really held on to the source of power that is available in all of us. We would rather be helpless. We would rather be um, uh, dependent on something or someone else. Jesus Christ says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, Gina, uh, I hope that answers your question. I want to be as clear as I can. I know I'm going to get blasted for it, uh, but that's the job. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Your toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Eddie asks, was Lazarus really dead? And if he was, where did he go until Jesus came? Eddie, I like your question because the, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is so instructive for us. Um, uh, Lazarus was really dead. That's what the Bible says. Um, so much so that for four days, Jesus waited to go just to make sure everybody knew that he was dead. So the question is, where did he go? Well, where Lazarus went, where his spirit went uh, in those four days, uh, was into the Luke chapter 16 place we call paradise or Abraham's bosom, located across a deep chasm from the place of torment. That's why Jesus, Eddie, when he went to the tomb of Lazarus, told him to roll away the stone. I love the King James. By now, Lord, he stinketh. But Jesus just called down a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus's spirit was brought from that place we call paradise back into his body, Jesus, who is Lord of all the spirits. Now, what would have happened? What would have happened? Had Jesus just said, come forth. Remember, th- those were family tombs. So there were a lot of people buried in that tomb over the over the years. Uh, had Jesus just said, come forth, everybody that had ever been buried in that tomb would have come forth. And, and can you imagine what that would have been like? So yes, he was really dead. He would have descended into paradise. When summoned up, he reentered the body. He was bound with grave clothes. He would have been wrapped the way we would understand a mummy to be wrapped. And uh, Jesus had him come out. He would have come hopping out. Um, and if it wasn't so glorious, it would be funny. Um, that's why Jesus said, take off his grave clothes. So that's where he was, Eddie. And I hope that Annis, uh, answers your question. Here is an anonymous question. I recently lost my adult son to COVID. How do I get angry over being, or how do I get over being angry at God? I am so deeply sorry for your loss. These are the kinds of things that we're dealing with uh, in our world. Um, if you believe the numbers of the government, more than 700,000 people have died in this nation as a result of COVID. Let me, let me say two things. One, don't blame God for COVID. I still don't understand. And uh, even as a new believer, I seem to get this and, and too many people don't. I still don't get why when bad things happen, we immediately blame God. I guess it's because we understand God had the power to stop it, but he didn't. But but were you angry at God over any of those other 700,000 people that have died? You see, when we lose somebody close to us or when something bad happens to us, we lose our ability to think rationally. And right now, being rational is your friend. Now, let me tell you, explain to you why. Right now, Jesus is your only source of comfort. Jesus is your only source of comfort. And he wants to wrap his arms around you and, and, and mourn with you. And the only way he can do that is if you let him do it. He's not angry with you because you're angry at him. Please understand that. 
God understands our emotions. God understands our grief. Jesus himself was acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. So what we have to really understand here is that Jesus will be there for you when nobody else will. He too is sorry that people are dying, that the world has become what it is. That's why he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He didn't weep because Lazarus was dead. He weeped because of all the pain, all the sorrow, the grief. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So run to Jesus now. Tell him you're sorry for being angry at him. He Again, he's not angry with you. But that will help you get back into his presence. And when we are hurting the most is when we need Jesus the most. And that's really the only path to getting over your anger. But God didn't cause this. This is a virus that was weaponized evidently at a lab in China. Who knows? Paul and I talk all the time about the, 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 the price those people are going to have to pay. When I say those people, those instrumental in developing and weaponizing this virus. Their carelessness has cost untold numbers of lives. And the pain that you're experiencing is being experienced all over this world. So run to Jesus. Tell him you're sorry. And ask him to help you. He will grieve right alongside with you. Let me also share this very quickly and then I'll get to a couple of questions that are coming in. Jesus, I said he's the only source of comfort. Now you've got to have faith enough to personalize that. Let him wrap his arms around you. It really is the only possible path to being well. Sorry for your loss. So too is Jesus. Tough one, I'm sorry. Here is a question from our mobile app from Kelly. Uh, She says, Hi, can you please explain Revelation 7, 1 through 3? Sounds like there are believers left on earth that aren't to be harmed uh, after the second coming. I don't think I'm understanding this correctly. Let me read it, Kelly, and then I will explain it. Revelation 7, this is in the Great Tribulation. After this, I saw four angels standing at four corners of the earth, holding back its four winds so that the wind would blow on land or sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east with the seal of the living God, and he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or trees until we have sealed the foreheads of the servants of God. Kelly, this is a very specific reference reference to the 144,000 witnesses. Now, in the end times, during the Great Tribulation, uh, for the first three and a half years, two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, are going to be witnessing to the world at the Western Wall from Jerusalem. Uh, uh, Television cameras will be there. Uh, People will be watching them 24-7. And they will be witnessing. But they will also have their own witnesses sitting out. And these are 144,000 Jewish evangelists. These are men who have been preserved for this very moment. And they will be empowered by the Spirit of God to do miraculous things. I always imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls who are invincible. They, they can't be harmed. They can't be touched um, because God is protecting them. That's the idea of the seal. Um, but th- these aren't um, uh, believers who are on earth 
um, uh, at all. I mean, they, they, they are believers, but they're going to come to believe in their Jewish Messiah. Uh, but these are not people who are part of the church. Uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are going to go out into the world, and people are going to get saved. The greatest revival in the history of the world is going to take place in those seven years. And it's going to be led by these 144,000. So these aren't believers the way we understand believers. Remember, after the rapture of the church, which happens before the Great Tribulation begins, um, um, God's attention is turned completely to Israel. And they're going to go out and they're going to save people. Now, not only Jews are going to be saved. One of the things we always have to remember is that the people who are um, um, going to be saved are, are going to lose their lives. Not these 144,000, but, but the people that are saved as a result of their ministry, they're going to lose their lives. They're going to be martyred for their faith. You can find them in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 under the altar of God crying out for vengeance. How long, O Lord, until you uh, avenge our blood? And that's what's going to happen. So these aren't believers the way we understand, Kelly. Not, not Christians who got left behind. Uh, but these are believers uh, in their Messiah. And um, they're going to lead a great revival, not only in Israel, but over the rest of the world. Thank you very, very much for the question. Here's an anonymous question from our mobile app. In a relationship, if unevenly yoked, when, if ever, is enough enough, pray or cut loose? Um, tough question. Um, it, it's hard. Now, you understand, I'm sure you're asking this in part. You've heard our testimony. Paula prayed for me for 13 years. Um, and God never let her cut loose. Uh, God told her, I love him. I want you to love him for me. Um, uh, so this is just the way it is. And I think uh, when we are uh, unequally yoked in a relationship, the pain is so immense that wanting to give up is just a fact of every day, in fact, every hour life. Um, a, a, a man or a woman who is an unbeliever is unable to love the believer the way that God wants him to be loved. And there's always going to be that pain. The pain of, of um, I, I'm, I'm going to be alone forever. Nobody cares about me. Uh, and, and the relationship is difficult. And that's, that's putting it mildly. Um, so when is enough enough? Enough is enough when God tells you you can go. Now, if your partner who is an unbeliever cheats on you, you can go. If it's a an unbeliever and he or she is abusing you, and by that I mean physically harming you, putting your life in danger, you can go. But short of that, and short of the unbeliever just abandoning you, short of that, then God's answer is to stay in the marriage. You know, I said Paula prayed for me for 13 years. What if she got tired of praying for me at 5 years or 10 years or 12 years? And yet when I ran away from home and gave my life to Jesus that, that afternoon in February of 1991, the only thing I knew about Jesus was that Paula's Jesus was real. And I actually cried out for Paula's Jesus. So I understand the pain. I understand the frustration more than you know. Most of the counseling that we do is dealing with this kind of pain from unequally yoked marriages. And, you know, my flesh wants to say, just leave him or leave her. But the result is, God says, don't. So you stay. Now, please hear this next part very, very clearly. Right now, in this kind of pain and frustration, it's when you need Jesus the most. Don't let your husband or your wife, who is an unbeliever, drag you away from Jesus. You fight as forcefully as you can to get closer to Jesus. You fight with all of your strength. You, you discipline yourself. You train yourself to be in the Word, to be in prayer, to be in church, to be an active part of a church body, serving others. And I promise you that God's Spirit 
will will abundantly fill you and you will find satisfaction, you will find peace and you will find joy. Even if you don't find it at home in your marriage, you'll find it other places. God has a plan for you. But you've got to fight. When you least feel like fighting is always when we need to fight the most. One last thing. Your husband or your wife and you don't indicate which you are. But your husband and your wife, the unbeliever, needs to see the joy of the Lord in you. When I called up for Paula's Jesus, I couldn't steal her joy. And believe me, I was a control freak. So I couldn't steal her joy. I tried. And that's how I knew her Jesus was real. So when my life got to that place of desperation, that's when I cried out. Let your husband or your wife see Jesus in you. You be joyful in spite of the pain that they're causing. I know it sounds impossible, but you see, that's why the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the question. We've got 30 minutes left in our Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We've got 30 minutes left for your phone calls. This is a Monday and the phone's been quiet, so there's no waiting in line. Here is a question from Amanda. Why did God allow the devil to attack Job? It doesn't seem like a loving God would do that. Uh, Amanda, there are questions that there are no answers for. These are the kinds of things that won't be explained to us until we're in the presence of the Lord. But let me give you just a slightly different perspective on it. How many multiplied millions of people throughout the quarter of time and space have been blessed by Job's experience. God knew that Satan was inspecting Job, looking for an opportunity and opening is what he was doing, and God knew it. So it's not like God was offering Job up as a as a sacrificial lamb. Um, God knew this is what the devil wanted to do. He wanted to destroy him. Job was the most righteous man on the earth at the time, and, and, um, and Satan was checking him out, trying to destroy him. Well, God simply acknowledged that. And for some reason, Amanda, that we don't know, it worked into God's perfect will to allow the devil to to afflict Job uh, and his family. Um, And uh, the result has been this wonderful book that we have that has been a source of comfort and strength for so many throughout the the, the ages. Um, But there's no real answer. I can tell you something for sure, though that God is a loving God, and he did permit. He didn't cause it, but he permitted Job to be attacked by the devil. God, who works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, our God, he worked in and through Job's life. And we have the word of God. Amanda, I hope that makes sense to you. I, I know we like answers that are more satisfying, but sometimes there aren't any. I I used to read Job and say, oh Lord, please don't let my name ever come up in a conversation between you and the devil. But that's just the way it is. So man, it's best I can do without an answer. Donald says, I watched your message on Sunday about women pastors. I think you are wrong. Well, Donald, that's your prerogative. And by the way, this wasn't yesterday. It was a week ago that uh, we, we talked about uh, women pastors. That wasn't the passage of Scripture, but but in the passage of Scripture we talked about women pastors. And Donald, here's what I would say to you. What did I say that was wrong? 
Obviously, you think women can be pastors. How can you justify that biblically? You can't. And I get people all the time that disagree with me, and when they come to me and they, they do it nicely, courteously, I, I just say, well, well, show me where I contradicted what the Bible says. And they never can. You know, what they'll say is, well, well, uh, I just, my opinion is different. Well, that's fine. But, but you see, I'm teaching the Bible, Donald. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach her have authority over a man in the church. Period. That's not an interpretation. That's just what the Bible says. And the context there is is order in the church. So, Donald, you think I'm wrong. The Bible says you're wrong. And you've got to decide, if you're a Christian, you've got to decide, are you going to agree with what the Word of God says? So I really don't have much to comment on beyond that, Donald, other than you can think I'm wrong, but, but you haven't shown me where I'm wrong. Where did I contradict what Scripture says? Margaret, bless her heart, I love this question. Margaret, your question is about the verse that as a brand new believer almost caused me to fall on my face in helplessness. Margaret says, Pastor, my question is about Matthew five forty eight. How can we be perfect? And I always quote in the King James here just because it just seems to me so much more emphatic. Be ye perfect. Can you imagine? We can't be perfect. Now, one of the things, Margaret, we got to do is we got to understand what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, in particular, chapter 5 in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus' ministry is Jewish. He is speaking to Jews. Jews ostensibly were waiting for their Messiah. When Jesus was in their midst, they rejected him. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was basically saying, okay, if you want to get to heaven without me, this is how good you have to be. And the summary there is you've got to be perfect. Now, humans would argue, well, nobody's perfect. Well, that's the whole point. Jesus was, for the Jews, raising the stakes. They thought that by having the law, by being descendants of Abraham, they were going to be in heaven. We're God's chosen people. Of course, we're going to be in heaven. That's a place only Jews will be, they believed. And Jesus said, well, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to believe in me. And if you don't believe in me, then you have to be perfect on your own. And since nobody, Margaret, is perfect or ever has been perfect except Jesus, Jesus' whole summary in Matthew chapter 5 is, if you're not this good, you're not going to heaven. And, and that should have, the same way the law should have, the law should have driven them to their knees, begging God for mercy. When Jesus got done in Matthew chapter 5, and he continues it in chapter 6 and part of chapter 7, but when he got done, if they really believed him, they would have fallen on their face and said, we are helpless, we're doomed. And, and Jesus would have said, okay, here's the answer, believe in me. But they didn't. They still had this righteousness of their own, or so they thought. And Jesus is basically saying, be perfect because I'm perfect. It's the only way you can get to heaven without me. So, Margaret, let me address this from a different perspective. We who are believers are to aim for perfection every day. In the presence of the Lord, then we're covered by his righteousness. It's when we get out from under his presence that we fall into trouble. That's when we find ourselves in a place where We know we're lost. So every day aim for perfection. Don't let the fact that you cannot be perfect in this life, don't let that fact keep you from trying to be. Don't let it be a source of discouragement. Well, what's the point, we say? Well, the point is to please Jesus every day. And Margaret, here's the joy I have in life on those days when I mess up. I have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, who died for my sins. All I have to do is tell him, Lord, I messed up. I have to take responsibility for it. Please forgive me. And he does that very thing. And guess what? I'm perfect. 
all over again. So that's the whole idea, this whole idea about perfection. Nobody goes to heaven apart from Jesus because nobody's perfect. And yet every one of us ought to try to be perfect every single day. Thank you, Margaret. Paul asks, did the early church use musical instruments in their worship? Um, You know, Paul, we don't know for sure whether they did or not. There is no reason to believe that they didn't. Musical instruments have been around uh, forever. And um, music has always been associated with worship. So I think it's a little naive to assume that the uh, first century church and beyond did not use musical instruments in their worship. And I'm sure, obviously, they didn't use electric guitars and drums and and, and uh, other kinds of modern instruments. But, but yeah, I'm sure that they used musical instruments. Now, normally, Paul, when I get this question, it comes from somebody... Uh, from the Church of Christ, uh, and they say, well, you can't find musical instruments used in the New Testament. And so um, they say, well, well, we're going to, an argument from silence, we're going to say that musical instruments shouldn't be in, and the singing should be a cappella. Uh, but, but that's not biblical either, Paul. So I think here's the thing. We're going to we're going to have instruments in heaven. Harps and lyres are mentioned, and angels are playing. So there's going to be musical instruments in heaven. So I think we probably ought to start preparing for it now. Let people worship. If you worship better in a in a liturgical church, worship in a liturgical church. As long as you're teaching the word. If you worship better with hymns and and no instruments, uh, or maybe you you like organs, uh, then worship there. But but. Don't prevent anybody else from enjoying worship in a more contemporary worship setting either. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Gable. He says, what should be done in church when there are a couple of people who are always prophesying to others in the church? Um, Gable, what, what I would do if I were in your position and this was the case, I, I get really frustrated with people who want to talk for God. Um, I would go to the pastor and tell him. You know, when I first got saved, the, the church that uh, uh, Paul and I attended, um, they they believed in the gifts of the Spirit and they had sort of a, a, a misunderstanding, a faulty understanding of the way the gifts ought to be used. And so they would have opportunities in every church service. Where it's a small church, but they'd have opportunities in every church service for people to to speak in tongues or to prophesy. And and uh, again, a, a faulty understanding of what the gifts are and the way they're supposed to be used. But we had this one lady who, every time the church came together, stood up and said, "Thus saith the Lord," and she would go off with these words. Um, if I was the pastor of that church, Gable, I would want to know that was happening and I would put an end to it. So that's what I think you ought to do. I think you ought to go to your pastor and say, these are the same people that are always saying, thus saith the Lord, and they're issuing these prophecies and the prophecies don't come true. And and um, and and so I just want you to know it. Now, if your pastor is unwilling to do anything about it, then then you're probably not in a in a healthy balanced church. But please, 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 everybody in the audience, please hear this. Stop speaking for God. Unless you've got your Bible open, stop speaking for God. He's quite capable of speaking to people on his own. So the prophecies, the people who are prophesying ought to be stopped. Gable, we know there are no prophets. The gift of prophecy still is in effect, but there are no prophets. And usually that's the one point that people miss when they are speaking for the Lord in a church setting. We need to be very careful. We cause a lot of damage. I don't have anybody on the phone. Let me tell you a quick story. Um, when I was a very young believer, I went to a church. Um, I woke up one morning. I was taking a walk with the Lord. I've been doing that since I got saved. And I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart and said he wanted me to go to this particular church. And the church was like 45 minutes away. Now, I, I I now know it wasn't the Lord who told me to do that, but I was an immature believer then. I didn't have that kind of discernment. 
So I rushed home, told Paula, we got to get ready. We're going to drive to church. We, we went to this church, and it was pretty crowded. And the pastor was going up and down the aisles, and he was speaking for God. The Lord says this, or the Lord says this. And, and he was being very direct with some people. And he kept walking by me. And finally, about the third or fourth time that he walked by me, Paul and I were sitting on the end. And, and uh, he walked by me, and he stopped and looked right at me, and he said, the Lord says for you to pay attention today because you're going to be doing this one day. Now, that wasn't God, but you see, the enemy knew I was called to be a pastor. And that was just him trying to, to, to get me thrown off course right at the beginning. All of that to say, don't speak for the Lord unless your Bible's open and you're declaring Scripture. People say, but God talks to me about other people. No, he doesn't. That's the unholy spirit. The Holy Spirit will speak to you about you. If the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you about somebody else, it will be a word of encouragement, a word of edification, a word of exhortation. We know that from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. So, hope that helps. Jessica says, It's hard for me to accept that Jesus had to bear the full wrath of God on the cross for my sins. It makes God seem angry instead of loving. You know, Jessica, let me, let me exchange a couple of words. Instead of it makes God seem angry instead of loving, how about it makes God seem holy and just? Now, you've touched upon uh, um, what, what shouldn't be controversial, but, but it is in this... Um, day and age of the great falling away, um, um, the, the, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah chapter 53, makes it clear that the price for our peace was placed upon Jesus. This is the wrath of God. If God is holy and just, sin has to be punished. Well, Jesus, who didn't sin and took our sin, had to accept the punishment that we deserved. Yesterday here, Jessica, was Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. And whenever I, I take the bread, I draw attention to the fact that, that this bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. Jesus' face was beaten so badly it wasn't recognizable as human in form. His back was ripped open by the scourge. His hands and feet had nails driven through them. Jews would walk by and spit upon him. Perhaps the greatest indignation of all. And he did that for you so you wouldn't be ashamed. He was punished so we could escape punishment. And if there's no wrath of God being brought to bear on sin, then God is neither holy or just. God is not angry. Now, God's angry at sin. We know that. But he's not angry at sinners. But Jesus indeed bore the full wrath of God. I believe, Jessica, that this is an essential of the historic Christian faith. There are some who will disagree with me, um, and I'm sure there are believers who, like you, feel like, well, this is just an angry God, and I, I choose not to believe that. But you see, you're the one missing out, because what you're missing out on is, is the fact that God loves you so much that he gave his son. His son was punished even though Jesus asked him three times if this cup could pass from him. But God said no, because he loved you, Jessica, because he loved me. I know somebody, a young woman, who some years ago converted to the Orthodox faith for this very reason. The Orthodox don't believe in penal substitution atonement. It's one of their many faults, one of the flaws doctrinally. But Jessica, we've got to understand God is holy and just. He's not angry, but he's holy and just. And if God were to allow any of us to get away with our sin, 
without it being punished, then he would no longer be just at all. That's really an important consideration for you to understand, Jessica. He loved you that much. Thank you for the question. Mark asks, Pastor Ron, when will the rapture happen? People say soon, but it's been a long time. Uh, uh, Peter answered that question for us um, in chapter 2 of his uh, second epistle. Um, God is not slow or slack concerning his promise, but he's patient, unwilling that any should perish. Now, Mark, I believe the rapture could happen at any moment. Uh, I believe it can happen before this program goes off the air. That's how urgent the hour is that we live in. Um, but the honest truth, and we're, we're not being honest if we don't acknowledge this, as people have been saying that for 2,000 years, the Apostle Paul, then we who are still alive and left will be caught up in the air to be gathered with him. Paul expected Jesus to come in his time. So for 2,000 years, and Peter's um, um, exhortation to us is don't worry about the time. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And that's just poetic license for saying time is different in God's economy. But here's what I know, Mark. Today, while we're still here, God can use us to help save people. There are people you're praying for, people you love, who aren't yet believers, and if the rapture happened now, they would be thrust into the most cataclysmic, horrible, savage time in the history of the earth. With no remedy, by the way. It's going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus intervenes. And so what we need to do is take advantage of the time that we have left, however long it is. Don't become rapture-weary. Focus on being with Jesus, and your job is to be with him every day. Just be with Jesus. You hear that on this program all the time. And so if Jesus doesn't come back tonight, you hang out with Jesus, and he'll use you. And then tomorrow you start all over. And then one day, sort of like Enoch, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more. And that'll be exactly the way it is with us. We'll walk with God and suddenly we'll be with God and we'll be walking with him for the next seven years in heaven and then we'll walk with him back here when he comes to execute justice on this world. So don't grow rapture weary. Live your life as though Jesus could come at any moment. But commit your efforts to serving the Lord as though Jesus weren't coming back for a thousand years. And one day he'll call us to be with him, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I've been talking about the rapture a lot, Mark. I don't know if it's because I've been teaching on it here at Calvary Chapel and people are interested, or or just that this is something the Holy Spirit's doing in other people's hearts. It is getting close to that time. Leo said, Pastor Ron, I've heard your messages on tongues recently, and I think everyone should speak in tongues at the same time, because that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. But but Leo, if you heard my messages, I explained that. Acts chapter 2 was a one-time only event, a supernatural event. It was the entrance of God, the Holy Spirit, into this world. And boy, does he know how to make an entrance. Now, a couple of things, Leo. If you think everybody should speak in tongues because that's what happened in Acts chapter 2, do you also believe that there should be cloven tongues of fire and the sound of a mighty rushing wind? Because that also happened in Acts chapter 2, and it happened to everybody. That was a one-time-only, never-be-repeated event. And they spoke in tongues because the people standing by needed to hear the wonders of God being declared in a language they could understand. Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, has nothing to do with the way we function in church service. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 tells us how we should function in the church. Under control, with decency, 
propriety. Um, Paul says if everybody's speaking in tongues at the same time and an unbeliever comes to church, he's going to think you're all out of your mind. And that's exactly what he's saying. So, Leo, I'll, I'll answer you the same way I answered the question earlier about women pastors. Um, study your Bible. If you can find justification or instruction that says everybody should speak in tongues at the same time, show me where I'm wrong. But just because your church says, well, everybody spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 2, so we ought to speak in tongues, that, that is in contrast to what the Bible teaches about order in the church. And Leo, just in case you didn't hear this when you heard my messages, I speak in tongues. I have the gift. We are a charismatic church. But everything needs to be done decently in order. Last question of the day. This is from Marcus. It's a quick one. Marcus says, does God love all creatures the same or does he love humans more? Marcus, all creatures were given by God to Adam uh, for his pleasure. That answers your question. He loves humans. We're the best thing he ever did. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, his poema in the Greek, his expression of beauty, his expression of creativity. That's us. And all one has to do is look around and see the diversity of humans and see uh, just just how fearfully and wonderfully made we are. And we have no doubt. God loves all creatures, for sure. But humans are the best thing he does, and he loves us the most. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Pastor Matt, if you're listening, happy birthday. God bless you. Hey, Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.